0: This evening will be in Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. So it would be helpful if you followed along in your Bible. You'll find that you get much more advantage from sermons when you are following along. I went to a few of Inner City Baptist High School's basketball games. They're in Class D, and they made it to the regional championships, championship this year and lost to the eventual champion, Southfield Christian. And uh, prior to that final game, which they lost, um, my boss, who is a graduate of Inner City, told me that the outcome of that game was dependent upon what happened last summer. That is, it depends on what, what, what those kids did with their summer. Did they spend hours in the gym working to perfect their shots and their moves? Did they spend hours... In the gym, lifting weights and building up their strength strength while other people were sitting on the beach. And I recognize that there are a lot more factors to each individual sporting event, each individual basketball game, but I think his point is a good one, and I agree with it. And I think the same is true when you take a test at school. Your ability to take a test depends very little with how well you can fill in circles Uh, with the multiple choice. It depends much more on how much time you took to study, how much time you put into work before you got to the test. And I think the same thing is true with temptation. The battle against temptation is often won in the classroom and on your knees long before the temptation occurs. We often get to the battle and we're bombarded with all of these temptations, and we can't figure out why that we fail every time we get to the battle. I would suggest to you that Job didn't develop his understanding about God and how he would respond in times of trial once the trials hit. And the reason I think that is because immediately when those things happened to him, he fell to his knees and said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Because he had already considered what he thought about God and what he thought about God in times of trial even though he hadn't experienced anything like that before. So, friend, if you keep blowing up in anger at your spouse or if you keep clicking on the pornographic advertisements or if you keep worrying every time a new crisis meets you, then you need to take stock of your battle tactics and figure out why you keep failing. That doesn't mean that there's no hope for us. If we haven't done the work in advance, there's no hope for us once we get to the battle. In fact, 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that there is always a way of escape. But I would would submit to you that, that we need to be equipped long before the temptation comes with the Scripture so that it will be our guide the next time we are faced with that temptation. And the amazing thing is that the temptations that we often fail at don't go away. We keep we keep getting bombarded with the same temptations. Is that true of you or just me? And and so we can learn from these things. We can prepare ourselves for these times of temptation. Last week we looked at the confirmation of Jesus at His baptism. That is, that God called out from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. If Jesus really is the chosen one of God, as God had said, from the clouds, If He really is the Son of God, then let's see how He will hold up to the most intense onslaught of temptation that anyone has ever experienced. And what does He use in order to battle this temptation? What does Jesus use to overcome uh, the same kinds of fights that we face in our spiritual lives? And uh, we will learn much if we give attention to the Word of God this evening. Luke chapter 4. Let me read our passage for us, beginning in verse 1. This is the Word of God. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, "'If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread.' And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. Jesus is uniquely equipped to battle against sin. Jesus is uniquely equipped to battle against sin and temptation. And we can learn much from Him. The setting of the temptation is found in verses 1 and 2. We see that Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. And I've said in other places what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Does this mean that it has something to do with His salvation? That He somehow was saved... Certainly, it cannot mean that. Jesus here is filled with the Spirit. We've seen that Zechariah, Elizabeth, and John the Baptist have all been filled with the Spirit in Luke's Gospel. Paul commands us in Ephesians chapter 5 to be filled with the Spirit. So what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Turn over to chapter... I'm I'm sorry, look down to verse 28. Chapter 4, verse 28. And here's another way that Luke uses that same verbal idea of being filled. This is the same Greek root word that's used here in verse 28. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. You see the same idea in chapter 6, verse 11. They were filled with rage. What does it mean to be filled with rage? Does it mean that they had a a rage cup and it was filled up to the top and it was kind of spilling over and now they're going to explode? No, it, it just means that they're controlled by... Their actions are controlled by their rage. And I would suggest to you that that's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. It means to be controlled by the Spirit. And this is important for us to know because the reason that Jesus is able to overcome temptations, these temptations that will come at Him with such great force, is because He is controlled by the Spirit. And we can learn from this. The same reason we will be able to overcome temptation. Is because we are filled with the Spirit. Notice, in this setting of the temptations, it was planned by God. It was God's will for Jesus to be tempted, and I choose my words carefully there. Notice, Jesus, full of the Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted. Or, as Matthew four records, he was led in the he was led in the wilderness to be tempted. That is, the Spirit led Him in the wilderness in order that He be tempted. Now, there are two ditches that we must avoid when we think about temptation and about how God uses temptation. The first is that God somehow is aloof or unconcerned or that He's unaware of temptations. And that somehow Jesus fell off the radar of God's knowledge for a period of time and He kind of fell into temptation. Second ditch that we need to avoid is that that God is the one who is the direct agent of, of tempting. Right? What does James 1.13 tell us? God cannot be tempted by evil, neither does He tempt anyone. So those are the two uh, ditches we need to avoid. But in the middle there is is the proper thinking, and that is that it was God's will, the Spirit was leading Him in order to be tempted. God didn't do the tempting, but He certainly had it as part of His plan, that Jesus would be tempted, as Hebrews says, in every way like as we are, yet without sin. Notice how often or for how long He is tempted. The the first part of verse 2, for 40 days being tempted by the devil. So, this Phrase, this verbal phrase, being tempted, is a present participle which has the idea of an ongoing action. Not just, here's these three temptations right on the 40th day, and that's all He had. No, it was throughout these 40 days, Jesus was being tempted. And the culmination of all of these temptations happened on the final day. This 40th day when He is uh, is tempted in a great way by Satan. So, Jesus is controlled by the Spirit. All of His temptations are part of the plan of God. And He has now been tempted for 40 days. And it culminates in these three representative temptations. And I say representative because it represents a lot of what He had been tempted uh, throughout these 40 days. The first temptation is found in verses 2-4. through We want to understand the nature of these temptations. Verses two through four. Jesus has, according to verses one and two, he has gone without food for forty days. Verse two, he ate nothing during those, we can say, forty days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. Likely, Jesus here is fasting so that he can give special focus to God's word and prayer. And we might think, well, that that must be some kind of superhuman ability, some miraculous ability for him to be able to go without food for forty days. Certainly, it does. Uh, it, does, uh, it, does great, it, it is greatly difficult for a person to go this long. In fact, a person can't go much longer than this without food. But we have two examples in the Scripture where men went without food for 40 days. Elijah did it in 1 Kings 19.8 and Moses did it twice in Exodus 20, 34 at Mount Sinai and Deuteronomy 9. And so Jesus goes without food for 40 days, and when He comes to the end of His 40-day fast, notice what it says about Him at the end of verse 2. He became hungry. Perhaps an understatement there, right? It's at this time when Jesus is at the height of His hunger that the devil tempts Him by trying to get Him to turn this stone into bread. And so we see the tactic of the devil in verse 3. So now we have kind of seen the setting, how how this is all set up, and now the devil speaks in verse 3. If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. The tactic of the devil. We see at least three things that the devil uses as a tactic, as a scheme in order to get Jesus to sin. The first is that he questions Christ's authority and God's provision. He questions Christ's authority and God's provision. Notice what he says there. If you are the Son of God. You know, Jesus, we all saw what happened. Chapter 3. We all saw what happened at your baptism. And the heavens opened, and there was a voice that came from heaven that said, this is my beloved Son, and this dove descended upon you. But if you really are the Son of God, where is God now when you're most hungry? Similar to what He did to Adam and Eve in the, gar- in the garden. Did God really say? The only reason that He's keeping this fruit from you is because He knows that you will become like Him. You see, Satan questions Christ's authority as the Son of God, and he questions God's provision. And he does the same with us. The second... Scheme that we see in this first temptation is that He offers something that is good. I want you to notice that Satan doesn't offer Him something that is inherently sinful. Bread is good. And, and this is what He offers to Jesus. And so, what we learn from that is sometimes our temptations can be something that is good by nature. That we can get something that takes the place of God, or that we take at a different time than God wants it. The third thing that Satan uses as far as his scheme is that he entices Jesus to act independently of God. And I think this is the main point of how Satan attacks him in this first way. He tries to get Jesus to act independently of God. Independent of God's power. Jesus was fasting in the wilderness... Trusting God to supply for his needs. But Satan comes along and tries to entice him to care for himself and his own strength. And while Jesus is God, that is true, it would be sinful of Jesus to act independently of his Father. Think about that for a minute. It would be sinful of Jesus to act independently of his Father. Here's what he says in John 5.30 and something very similar in John 8.28. He says, I can do nothing of my own initiative because I do not seek my own will but the will of Him who sent me. I cannot act, Jesus says, independently of my Father. And here's what Satan's trying to do. He's trying to get Jesus to act independently of His Father. So go ahead and turn this stone into bread. Seems like a harmless temptation. He also seeks he also tries to entice Jesus to act independently, independently of God's timing. Remember, there's nothing inherently wrong with desiring bread. The temptation was in how He would get it and when He would get it. Would Jesus trust God to supply for His need and the leading of the Spirit as He's led in the wilderness to fast and pray? Or would Jesus satisfy His hunger by exercising power apart from God? And that is the real nature of the temptation. Satan tries to get us to act independently of the Father. God's not providing for me what I think I need, and so I'm going to go out ahead of Him and provide it myself. Notice the defense by Jesus in verse 4. And Jesus answered him, it is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. Jesus' source of strength in temptation, as we'll see in each of these responses is the Word of God. The source of His strength in times of temptation is the Word of God. Here he quotes from Deuteronomy eight three. You can see that in the margin of your Bible. Deuteronomy, the whole book of Deuteronomy, is Moses' final book, and it's actually a record of his final sermon. It's a sermon that he preaches in apparently a one twenty four 24-hour period to the people of Israel, and he reminds them of all that God has done for them. In Deuteronomy 8, He reminds them of the time in the wilderness when God let them go hungry. Do you remember this? And, And God said that He did this so that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from My mouth. God let them go hungry so that they would understand that there's something more important than physical food. Jesus uses this text to combat this temptation. To make the point that while food is important, it's not as critical as being sustained by the word of God. Here's here. Here's perhaps a uh, more helpful way to understand it. We can live a meaningful existence apart from physical food, can't we? We can have a meaningful existence apart from food. We can have a meaningful existence apart from all of the things that are, that, that, that are comfort type things, and even necessities. We can have a meaningful existence, but we can't have a meaningful existence apart from God's Word. And Jesus, that's the point in Deuteronomy 8, that's the point that Jesus is making to Satan. There is nothing more important than God's Word. Man shall not live by bread alone. Jesus would tell His disciples in John 4.34, My food is to do the will of Him who sent Me. Remember, He's at the well there and they say, Have you eaten anything yet? And He says, My food is to do the will of Him who sent Me. See, Jesus didn't run out ahead of God and take something that God was not ready to give Him. We often give in to temptation because we are so sure that God will not do what He has said He would do. We are so sure that God won't give us that greater pleasure, and so we'll just get it ourselves. Maybe He doesn't know our needs. And our problem is that we don't value the Word of God as much as we value the pleasures of this world, even if those pleasures are not inherently evil. Do you see? So first, we have a test of independence. Will you, Jesus... Live independently of your father. The second temptation is a test of comfort in verses five through eight. The test of comfort. The tactic of the the tactic of the devil is found in verses five through seven. He shows him all the kingdoms of the world. Not sure if he takes him around, gives him a ride around the world, be able to see these things, see see their great uh, power and pomp and circumstance. Or if he just gives some kind of visionary miracle so that Jesus can have a picture of what all the kingdoms of the world look like. And notice what he does for him. Verse 6, And the devil said, I will give you all of this. I'll give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me and I give it to whomever I wish. So here's the offer that he gives to Jesus. Satan is basically saying, I am the ruler of this world. These kingdoms have all been given to me and I would gladly give them to you. And the the Scriptures actually support what Satan says here. That He is, John 12, 31, called the ruler of this world. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, called the God of this world, small g. And so, in His mind, He has exclusive rights to all these kingdoms. And He has authority to give them away. Now, we know that any authority that He has is derived authority, Right? not shared or competing authority. Whatever rule the devil has is from God. That God has given it to him for a time. Satan says, I own it. I act independently of God and I will gladly give these kingdoms over to you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, Jesus at this time would have been well aware of Rome's nearly universal power. That Jesus would have recognized what a great Superpower Rome was. The Roman Empire was, was uh, fully in place at this time. And yet, Satan's offering him more. A stronger kingdom than Rome. All the kingdoms of the world, even the ones that have resisted Rome to this point, will be given over to you. This is a window into how temptation works. Satan often gets us to bite with a look and then a desire, and then hope, hopefully in his mind, that we act on it and sin. That's how he got Eve to, to sin. First started out with a look, and then a desire. She saw that it was delightful to the eye, and she desired to have it, and then she ate. And her husband with her. David, in the same way, saw Bathsheba and desired to have her for himself. And then he committed adultery. And this is what he does here for Jesus. He shows him something that is appealing to Jesus. Now, I hope you recognize that this, is, this was appealing to Jesus. Jesus had already agreed in eternity past with God the Father to be treated like a servant, to go to the cross and, and then finally receive glory. But here's the great Uh, The the great trickery of Satan. He's offering to Jesus glory first and no suffering. God was promising him suffering first and then glory. Satan's saying, you can skip all the suffering and go right to the glory. Wouldn't you like that? Satan's offering a shortcut here. Avoid the trouble and get the glory now. One little catch. Verse 7. If you worship before Me, it shall be yours. The requirement for Jesus to receive these kingdoms that Satan is offering is false worship. Exchange your supreme love for God for loving Me, and you can have it. Notice Jesus' defense again, similar to the first. His source of strength in the midst of temptation is the Word of God. source of strength in the midst of temptation is the Word of God. Verse 8, Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Again, he quotes from Deuteronomy. This time from chapter 6, verse 13. In chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, Moses is warning Israel about coming into the Promised Land and getting fat on their own accomplishments. And his command is what Jesus quotes to Satan. It is that, that, that they, Israel, ought to... Worship the Lord their God only. And Jesus says, That is my responsibility. Worship Him only. While Satan's offers are enticing, Jesus has pledged His allegiance to God. By way of application, I would suggest to you that Satan will often entice you to avoid the path of difficulty and to take the path of ease. He will often offer you comfort But it almost always, especially when it comes from Him, it always comes at the expense of your allegiance to God. I don't know how Satan has been tempting you this week or this day, but if you think about the ways in which he has tempted you recently, you recognize that he is offering you a path of ease. To avoid the path of difficulty, he's questioning the authority of God, the provision of God, the care of God, and trying to get you to take a shortcut in your spiritual life. Certainly, God couldn't want you to go through this much trouble in order to do what He wants. But so why don't you just take this little shortcut? And in the process, we, we betray God through our sin. The third temptation is a test of God's provision. Verses 9-12, to 12, test of God's provision. A test of independence, a test of comfort, and a test of God's provision. This time Satan takes Jesus from the wilderness to the southeast corner of the temple, which which at that point had a drop-off down into the Kidron Valley of between 300 and 500 feet. I think Josephus says 450 feet there. Notice the tactic of the devil in verses 9-11. to And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said, If you are the Son of God... Doesn't that sound familiar? Again, he questions Christ's authority and God's provision. Are you really the Son of God? if you really are who you say you are, then why don't you throw yourself off. Why don't you privately test God and see if He really does care for you? And this time Satan does something that is that is uh, extremely devious and that is he uses Scripture. Verses 10 and 11, For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, verse 11, they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Here he quotes from psalm 91 why don't we turn there psalm 91 satan uses scripture to try to support his reasoning for the for giving in to this temptation god has the power to protect you and his angels will care for you is that true does god have the power to protect jesus and will his angels care for jesus so there's truth in what Satan has to say. and what so, so he does say what is true. But notice Psalm 91 and verse 1. And notice to whom this psalm is written. Or to whom this psalm is promised, I should say. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of, Almighty, of the Almighty. And then you have all these promises. So who is it that God protects? Who is it that God uses His angels to protect those who dwell in the shelter of the Most High. So in other words, Satan uses Scripture, but he uses it out of context. The point is is that faithful obedience is of critical importance. This is what God is looking for. He's looking for those who dwell in His presence, that dependently trust on Him, and that God will rescue them. Now, often the way that God rescues people is not what Satan was arguing for. Jump off and God will rescue in that way. Instead, God actually rescues them through the path of suffering and even through death. He allows them to go through suffering and to death. And He rescues them on the other end by bringing eternal life. Turn back to Luke 4. Jesus knows exactly what He's doing. Jesus knows that if if He were to force God to act, He would actually be defying God. If I were to jump off this temple, yes, God could care for me and the angels would care for me, but I would be forcing God's hands. And so, notice His defense in verse 12. Again, He depends on the source of strength that comes from the Word of God. We cannot miss this point. Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus responds using another text from Deuteronomy. This time, chapter 6 again, but verse 16. Moses, again, is reminding Israel not to disobey God when things get comfortable in the Promised Land. Don't get comfortable. Don't get fat on your accomplishments. And in so doing, step out and do something that God doesn't want you to do and put Him to the test like they did at Massa. That's how the rest of the verse goes. There at Massa, they were in the wilderness, hungry and thirsty, and they effectively forced God to act. They start complaining to Moses to say, why did you ever bring us out here? And so God supplies their food for them. Do You remember, they're sick of this manna. We've had enough of this. Why can't we have meat like everyone else? At least we had meat back in Egypt. God says, I'll give you some meat. He gives them quail until it's effectively coming out their nose. They loathe it so much. See, they're forcing God to act. They're putting God to the test. And so Jesus' response is, notice what it is not. He doesn't say, those promises from Psalm 91 are not true. That's not what He says. Because those promises are true. Instead, He says, I'm not going to force God to act. I'm not going to put Him to the test and make Him do something that He hasn't intended to do. I'm not going to ask God for a sign. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down and see if God really will take care of you. Asking for a sign is not something that a mature believer does. God, I'm I'm willing to do whatever You ask of me, but first, let me see a sign that this is what You want Me to do. Could God do that? Could God give us a sign in order to show us His power and His direction in our life? Does God have the ability to show us in a clear way His will for us? Absolutely. But here's the problem. When we force God to do it, when we force God to act, and that's where it becomes sin, we test God. Act. Asking for a sign actually shows our lack of trust in God. I think that's expressed in the story of Gideon and the Pharisees. Gideon, certainly a believer, but I think he acted in weak faith or no faith when he asked for a sign two times. And the Pharisees, remember, Jesus said they're always asking for a sign. They're always asking for a sign because they can't believe what is clearly in front of them, the Scriptures. And here's the danger for us as believers. that we want to know where God is leading. And so, in some ways, asking for a sign sign, sounds kind of spiritual, doesn't it? I want to know where God's leading. But actually, it's really a weak act of faith, if at all. It's a way in which we can look like we're trusting God when we're really not. God has given us everything He wants us to know about His will. It's in His Word. Everything. 2 Peter 1.3 says that His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Everything. God's Word is sufficient for the direction that we need in life. We don't need any exterior signs. We don't need any signs in the sky, any messages from airplanes to tell us what God wants us to do. He's told us. And for us to ask for one is actually putting Him to the test. Like Israel did in the wilderness. Jesus doesn't fall for the trap. The conclusion of Satan's wilderness temptation is found in verse 13. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. When the devil had finished every temptation, it sounds like he was tempting him in as many ways as he could devise. That he was using all of his arsenal to try to get Jesus to fail. Now when we read this we might think well now he doesn't have any more temptations. He's finished with every temptation, he's passed the test and now the rest of his life is going to be a breeze. We obviously know that he's going to be tempted in a great way at Gethsemane, Luke 22:39 to 46. But Satan is also tempting him throughout his life and you as a believer will never come to a place in this lifetime where you will be free from temptation. This verse simply means that the devil went back to the drawing board to find another strategic opportunity to get him to fall. The main point of this passage is that Jesus is uniquely equipped to do battle against sin. Jesus is uniquely equipped to do battle against sin. Adam and Eve, if you think about it, had everything that they needed to respond rightly to temptation. When Satan came to them in the garden. They had all the food they wanted. They were only told to avoid one fruit. And yet they failed. Yet Jesus here is without food. He's tired. And He still responds rightly to temptation in the wilderness. And that is because Jesus is like no other human being who has ever lived. He is the sinless Son of God, uniquely qualified to fight against sin. So his unique ability to battle against sin should encourage us in two ways. First, his conquering of sin and death begins with overcoming temptation. We can be confident that a person who is able to overcome the most severe forms of temptation can also overcome sin and death. That he can conquer it fully and finally. The second way it should encourage us is that the source of his strength to overcome sin is the same source that we have at our disposal. And what is that? It's the Holy Spirit working through the Word of God. Jesus doesn't have to use any uh, uh, strange or silly tactics that we would come out of left field. We, We never would have expected Him to respond this way. He uses the Scripture. And I hope you recognize that the battle that Jesus faced in the wilderness was much more difficult than ours will ever be you might think, well, He was God. I mean, the temptations couldn't have been that strong. But you ought to think about His temptation a little bit more carefully. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way like as we are. What was the most severe form of temptation that you've ever faced? Jesus has faced worse. He has faced it in the same way, in a similar way. And in worse ways. And Jesus endured all kinds of temptations that the temptations that we have given into, and yet He didn't give in. Do you recognize that the more that you resist, the harder it gets? Did you ever think about that? That with our temptation we resist, we resist, the temptation's hard, we keep resisting, and then we give in. And when do we give in? When it's hard. Well, guess what? If we didn't give in, what would happen to that temptation? Does it go away? No, it gets harder. That's the point. When we give in to temptation, we give in because it's getting too difficult. Jesus didn't give in. He was fully human. He was tempted like we are. The greatest strength of the temptation comes in continuing to resist that's when the most power is there in the temptation and that's what Jesus faced he continued to resist and to the point where he did not sin so the main point of this is that Jesus is uniquely equipped equipped to battle against sin but we can also learn from his example about how we can battle against sin and again uh, some of these are just uh, summary of what I've already said but I'll, I'll say them again first recognize the schemes of the devil recognize the schemes of the devil satan will often entice you with good desires like food the fact that he was offering jesus food was not inherently evil he's not going to always tempt you to murder or commit adultery so though certainly he will at times in various in various levels of those types of sin but but often what Satan is doing is he's tempting you with good things. He's offering, he's putting out something that may not be inherently evil. Satan also entices us with shortcuts. Tries to get us to take the easy road. The difficult path, that's a little too much. Does God really care for you? Satan appeals to us with Scripture, wrongly interpreted. you know that Satan knows the Scripture better than you do? Satan knows the Scripture inside and out. He could quote every verse, I'm sure. And so he uses the Scripture to try to get you to fail. But the problem is he takes it out of context and uses it in a way that God hadn't intended. Satan entices you with independence. He causes you to doubt God's authority. If you really are the Son of God. Two times he says that. If you will bow down to me, he says in the second temptation. He gets you to doubt God's authority over you. Is God really the one who's worthy of your worship? Or wouldn't you be better off to avoid all the suffering that you're going through and follow me instead? So recognize the schemes of the devil in order to battle against it. Secondly, the second thing we can learn is that God uses temptation to strengthen our character. Again, God doesn't do the tempting. He's not the direct agent of tempting. But I hope you recognize that if God wanted to, He could have removed Jesus from the temptations. He could have kept Him from the wilderness. You see, God uses temptations to strengthen us and to increase our confidence in His Word. Thirdly, our greatest weapon against temptation is the Word of God, just like Jesus. Our greatest weapon... Against temptation is the Word of God. Listen to Psalm one nineteen eleven. Your Word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalmist prays to God. You know how I know that I'm going to battle against sin is because I I've, I've been I have been hiding God's Word in my heart. So Satan comes to us with Scripture, and here's how we counter him. We counter his improper use of Scripture with the proper use of Scripture. Your battle against sin begins in boot camp. Your ability to pass the test starts in your study time. And here's the point. Work hard at understanding God's Word and never minimize the importance of reading God's Word and hearing it preached and learning theology as much as that makes us cringe that... Like we're back in a classroom. This is how you win in temptation. How you think determines how you respond in temptation. Our defense against Satan is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Isn't it amazing that our job is not to defeat Satan? Our job is not to defeat the demons. In Ephesians 6, our job is to stand firm. To resist, We can't overpower the demons and Satan. We can't do it. They are much more powerful than us. All we can do is resist. And here's how we resist with the Word of God. The Spirit works through us with the Word of God to resist so that we don't give in. We don't put our guard down. We can't outwit Satan. We can't overpower him. We can't outlast him. He is the most powerful creature in the world but he is a creature he's a created being, he is finite and he can be resisted but he only can be resisted through the power of the word of God as the spirit works through it in you so be filled with the spirit be filled with the spirit, the way that you are filled with the spirit, the way that you are controlled by the spirit is by letting the word of God dwell in you richly let me ask you, as we conclude tonight, what battle against sin do you keep losing? What battle, what, what temptation do you keep giving in to? What will you do this week to prepare for that temptation? What verses can you write down tonight or tomorrow and meditate on and memorize so that you can be prepared when that temptation comes? What philosophy do you need to have regarding your response to temptation? What tactical measures do you need to change so that you can, through the power of the Spirit, win this fight? There is no temptation that has taken you except what is common to man. And God has given you with each temptation a way of escape so that you'll be able to stand up under it. You know what that means is? It's the Spirit of God working through His Word. What will you do to... Prepare yourself for when temptation comes your way, this week. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the example of our Lord. We're thankful that He is uniquely equipped to battle against temptation and win. We're thankful that His death provided life for us and an ultimate victory over sin and death. And we know that while He has removed from us the power of sin, no longer a sin our master, we Still experience the presence of sin in this life. But one day we will be removed fully from the presence of sin when we make it to the next life, when Jesus finally conquers sin and death through the destruction of Satan and his demons and all who oppose him in in hell forever. Or we're thankful that he will come to reverse the curse that there is on this earth. We long for the day when that will take place. Until then, give us the strength to stand up and to resist. Help us to know how we can battle against sin. Lord, we sometimes don't really know how to respond when it comes to temptation. So give us the strength to find out the best way to honor You and to resist. Other times we do know exactly what we need to do and we don't do it because we think wrongly in our minds that You don't care for us. So help us to depend fully upon Your Word to rely on the strength of Your Word to sustain us, Your promises, that You are good and faithful. Or thank You for these who have come tonight and have worked hard throughout their Christian lives to resist temptation and who are growing in the faith. pray that You would help each of us to continue to grow even more. In Jesus' name.